Chapter 8 of The Charing Cross Mystery by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fligwood's Rents. Heatherwick went to the hotel telephone again before he had finished his lunch, and as a result, Matherfield was on the platform at Victoria when the 224 ran in. He showed no surprise at seeing Heatherwick and Rona together. His manifest concern was to get Heatherwick to himself and away from the station, and Heatherwick, seeing this, said good-bye to Rona, with a whispered word that he would look in at Malter's hotel before evening. A few minutes later, he and Matherfield were in a taxicab together, hastening along Buckingham Palace Road. "'Well,' inquired Heatherwick, "'this man?' "'I don't think there's any doubt about his being the man you saw with Hannaford,' replied Matherfield. "'He answers to your description, anyway. But I'll tell you how we came across his track. Last night a man named Appleyard came to me. He's a chap who has a chemist shop in Horseferry Road, Westminster, a middle-aged, quiet sort of man, who prefaced his remarks by telling us that he very rarely had time to read newspapers.' or he'd have been round to see us before. But yesterday he happened to pick up a copy of one of last Sunday's papers, and he read an account of the Hannaford affair. Then he remembered something that seemed to him to have a possible connection with it. Some little time ago he advertised for an assistant, a qualified assistant. He'd two or three applications which weren't exactly satisfactory, then one evening he couldn't give any exact date but from various things he told us i reckoned up that it must have been on the very evening on which hannaford met his death a man came and made a personal application appleyard described him medium-sized a spare man sallow complexioned thin face and beard large dark eyes very intelligent superior manner poorly dressed and evidently in low water that's the man i'll be bound exclaimed heatherwick did he give the chemist his name he did name and address answered matherfield he said his name was james granite and his address number eight fligwood's rents gray's inn road holborn end he told appleyard that he was a qualified chemist and produced his proofs and some references. He also said that though he'd never had a business of his own, he'd been employed, as indeed the references showed, by some good provincial firms at one time or another. Lately, he'd been in the employ of a firm of manufacturing chemists in East Ham. For some reason or other, their trade had fallen off, and they'd had to reduce their staff, and he'd been thrown out of work, and had had the further bad luck to be seriously ill. This, he said, had exhausted his small means, and he was very anxious to get another job, so anxious that he appeared to come to Appleyard on very low terms. Appleyard told him he'd inquire into the references and write to him in a day or two. He did inquire, found the references quite satisfactory, and wrote to Granite, engaging him. But Granite never turned up, and Appleyard heard no more of him, until he read this Sunday paper. Then he felt sure Granite was the man, and came to me. "'I shouldn't think there's any doubt in the case,' remarked Heatherwick. 
but before we go any further a question did appleyard say what time it was when this man came to him that evening he did it was just as he was closing his shop nine o'clock granite stopped talking with him about half an hour indeed appleyard told me more after they'd finished their talk appleyard who doesn't live at the shop locked it up and he then invited granite to step across the street with him and have a drink before going home they had a drink together in a neighbourhood saloon bar and chatted a bit there it would be nearly ten o'clock according to appleyard when granite left him and he remembered that granite on leaving him went round the corner into victoria street on his way no doubt to the underground and in victoria street equally without doubt he met hannaford muttered heatherwick well and the rest of it well of course as soon as i learned all this i determined to go myself to fligwood's rents replied matherfield i went first thing this morning fligwood's rents is a slum street only a man who is very low down in the world would ever dream of renting a room there it's a sort of alley or court on the right-hand side of gray's inn road going up some half-dozen squalid houses on each side let off in tenements number eight was a particularly squalid house slatternly women and squalling brats about the door and general dirt and shabbiness all around none of the women about the place knew the name of granite but after i described the man i wanted they argued that it must be the gentleman on the top back they added the further information that they hadn't seen him for some days i went up a filthy stair to the room they indicated the door was locked and i couldn't get any response to my repeated knockings so then i set out to discover the landlord and eventually unearthed a beery individual in a neighbouring low-class tavern i got out of him that he had a lodger named granite who paid him six shillings a week for this top-back room and he suddenly remembered that granite hadn't paid his last week's rent that made more impression on him than anything i said and he went with me to the house and to cut things short we forced the door and found the man dead in his bed dead exclaimed heatherwick dead then dead then yes and he'd been dead several days according to the doctors replied matherfield grimly dead enough it was a poor room but clean you could see from various little things that the man had been used to a better condition but as regards himself he evidently had gone to bed in the usual way his clothes were all carefully folded and arranged and by the side of the bed there was a chair on which was a half-burnt candle and an evening newspaper that would fix the date suggested heatherwick of course it did and it was the same date as that on which hannaford died answered matherfield i've made a careful note of that circumstance everything looked as if the man had gone to bed in just his ordinary way read the paper a bit blown out his light dropped off to sleep and died in his sleep yes and from what cause i wonder exclaimed heatherwick precisely the same idea occurred to me knowing what i did about hannaford said matherfield however the doctors will tell us more about that but to wind up 
I had a man of mine with me, and I left him in charge while I got further help, and sent for Appleyard. Appleyard identified the dead man at once as the man who had been to see him. Indeed, on opening the door, we found Appleyard's letter engaging him, lying with one or two others just inside. So that's about all, except that I now want to know if you can positively identify him as the man you saw with Hannaford, and I also want to open a locked box that we found in the room, which may contain something that will give us further information. Altogether, it's a step forward. Yes, admitted Heatherwick, it's something. But there's spade work to be done yet, Matherfield. I don't think there's any doubt now that Granite encountered Hannaford after he left Appleyard, and that indicates that Granite and Hannaford were old acquaintances. But supposing they met at, or soon after, ten o'clock, where did they go? Where did they spend their time between that and the time they entered my compartment at St. James's Park? That would be what? asked Matherfield. It was well after midnight. Mine was the last train going east, anyway, said Heatherwick. I only just caught it at Sloane Square. But we can certainly ascertain the exact time to a minute. Still, those two, meeting accidentally, as I conclude they did, must have been together two or three hours. Where? At that time of night. Surely there must be some way of finding that out. Two men, each rather noticeable. Somebody must have seen them together, somewhere. It seems impossible that they shouldn't have been seen. Aye, but in my experience, Mr. Heatherwick, it's the impossible that happens, rejoined Matterfield. In a beehive like this, where every man's intent on his own business, ninety-nine men out of a hundred never observe anything, unless it's shoved right under their very eyes. Of course, if we could find out if and where Hannaford and Granite were together that night, and where Granite went to after he slipped away at Charing Cross, it would vastly simplify matters. But how are we going to find out? There's been immense publicity given to this case in the papers, you know, Mr. Heatherwick. Portraits of Hannaford and details about the whole affair and so on. And yet we've had surprisingly little help and less information. I'll tell you what I think it is, sir. What we want is that tall, muffled-up chap who met Hannaford at Victoria. Who is he now? Who, indeed, assented Heatherwick. Vanished, without a trace. Oh, well, said Matherfield cheerfully, you never know when you might light on a trace. But here we are at this unsavory Fligwood's rents. The cab pulled up at the entrance to a dark, high-walled, stone-paved alley, which at that moment appeared to be full of women and children. So, too, did the windows on either side. The whole place was somber and evil-smelling, and Heatherwick felt a sense of pity for the unfortunate man whose luck had been bad enough to bring him there. A murder, a suicide, or a sudden death is a breath of heaven to these folk, said Matherfield, as they made their way through the ragged and frowsy gathering. It's an event in uneventful lives. Here's the place, he added, 
as they came to a doorway where a policeman stood on guard. And here are the stairs. Mind you don't slip on them, for the wood's broken and the banisters are smashed. Heatherwick cautiously followed his guide to the top of the house. There, at another door, stood a second policeman, engaged, when they caught sight of him, in looking out through the dirt-obscured window of the landing. His bored countenance brightened when he saw Matherfield. Stepping back, he quietly opened the door at his side. And the two newcomers, silent in view of the task before them, tiptoed into the room beyond. It was, as Matherfield had remarked, a poor place, but it was clean and orderly, and its occupant had evidently tried to make it as habitable and comfortable as his beans would allow. There were one or two good prints on the table, half a dozen books on an old chest of drawers. In a cracked vase on the mantelpiece there were a few flowers, wilted and dead. Heatherwick took in all this at a glance, then turned to Matherfield, who silently drew aside a sheet from the head and shoulders of the rigid figure on the bed, and looked inquiringly at his companion. And Heatherwick gave the dead man's face one careful inspection, and nodded. Yes, he said, that's the man. Without doubt, asked Matherfield. No doubt at all, affirmed Heatherwick. That is the man who was with Hannaford in the train. I knew him instantly. Matherfield replaced the sheet and turned to a small table which stood in the window. On it was a box, a square, old-fashioned thing, clamped at the corners. This seems to be the only thing he had that's what you may call private, he observed. It's locked, but I've got a tool here that'll open it. I want to know what's in it. There may be something that'll give us a clue. Heatherwick stood by while Matherfield forced open the lock with an instrument which he produced from his pocket, and began to examine the contents of the box. At first there seemed little that was likely to yield information. There was a complete suit of clothes and an outfit of decent linen. It seemed as if Granite had carefully kept these in view of better days. There were more books, all of a technical nature, relating to chemistry. There was a small case containing chemical apparatus, and another in which lay a pair of scales. In a third they found a microscope. He wasn't down to the very end of his resources, or he'd have pawned these things, muttered Matherfield. They all look good stuff, especially the microscope. But here's more what I want. Letters. He drew forth two bundles of letters, neatly arranged and tied up with tape. Unloosening the fastenings and rapidly spreading the envelopes out on the table, he suddenly put his finger on an address. "'There you are, Mr. Heatherwick,' he exclaimed. "'That's just what I expected to find out, "'though I certainly didn't think we should discover it so quickly. "'This man has lived at Selithwaite some time or other. "'Look there at this address. "'Mr. James Granite, 7 Victoria Terrace, Selithwaite, Yorkshire.' "'Of course, that's how he came to know and be with Hannaford.' They were old acquaintances. See, there are several letters. Heatherwick took two or three of the envelopes in his hand and looked closely at them. 
he perceived at once what Matherfield had not noticed. Just so, he said, but what's of far more importance is the date. Look at this, you see. That shows that Granite was living at Sellethwaite ten years ago. It was of that time that Hannaford was talking to him in the train. Oh, we're getting at something, assented Matherfield. Now we'll put everything back, and I'll take this box away and examine it thoroughly at leisure. He replaced the various articles, twisted a cord round the box, knotted it, and turned to the dead man's clothes, lying neatly folded on a chair close by. I haven't had a look at the pockets of those things yet, he continued. I'll just take a glance. You never know. Heatherwick again watched in silence. There was little of interest revealed, until Matherfield suddenly drew a folded bit of paper from one of the waistcoat pockets. Smoothing it out, he uttered a sharp exclamation. Good, he said. See this? A brand new five-pound note. Now I'll lay anything. He hadn't had that on him long. Got it that night, doubtless. And from whom? I should say Hannaford gave it to him, suggested Heatherwick. But Matherfield shook his head and put the note in his own pocket. That's a definite clue, he said with emphasis. I can trace that. End of chapter 8